One of the central tenets of Christianity is our reverence for the Bible as more than just a collection of ancient texts, but as a sacred revelation, the writing of which was guided by God through the Spirit. We believe that it contains truth. However, how to best interpret scripture and craft theology from its words are the subject of endless debate. Today we're going to talk about scripture, about the early chapters of Genesis, and select verses from the New Testament to see if the capital T truth in scripture allows for an old earth and an evolutionary mechanism of creation. Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science and studying birds and in following Jesus. I help start Disciple Science to produce short videos and other resources to show how science can inspire a deepened Christian faith. Now let's get on with the podcast. Thanks for joining me this week. I am so glad you are here as we continue our discussion of the intersection of science and Christian faith and explore this topic of evolutionary creation this week asking, is it compatible with the Bible? Now, full disclosure, I am not a Bible scholar. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise to you. You listen to the introduction, right? I'm an ecologist, but I'm an ecologist who has spent basically my whole life reading and studying scripture. I have tremendous interest in how to make sense out of it. And I have encountered the views of many different scholars. And so most of what I'm going to share with you today are not just my ideas, but the ideas that I've encountered from people that have spent more of their life dedicated to studying and understanding scripture. So I'm going to share my thoughts, but I'm mostly going to try and communicate the ideas of more learned scholars than myself. Now, what's my approach? As we address topics that are controversial, like heliocentrism, which is an old controversy in the intersection of science and faith, or a more modern one, like an older earth or evolutionary creationism, I've got a very high view of scripture. And if there is a uniform chorus across Bible scholarship that says, this is not compatible with what the Bible says, then I will go along with that, even if it means I have to wrestle with something else. But I also want to acknowledge that if there isn't uniformity, then I think we have the freedom to explore why some people believe one way and some people believe the other way. For example, some people historically tried to dismiss all ideas of miracles from scripture. There was a movement early in the scientific revolution where people started dismissing the, the idea that God works through miracles. And then they just said, maybe there were no miracles. And they said, no resurrection, no divine incarnation, uh, really just no miracles. And Bible scholars just said, look, that's, that's not what, what scripture is telling us. And that's actually not what history supports either. That there seems to be an account where Jesus was dead as a doornail for a couple of days and came back to life. That's a miracle. That's what scripture holds. And that's what, that's what we need to, to believe. And so whether science can explain that or not, clearly cannot, I'm going to hold to it. Right? So I'm willing to sit with these things that are uncomfortable for science. But I also want to acknowledge that, especially in the 
what we've learned from the heliocentrism discussion from centuries back, that scripture shouldn't always be read just assuming that the simple plain reading is the best reading. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from our exploration of that topic. And I know we haven't really expo- uh, covered that topic explicitly in enough detail. Perhaps we'll get to that someday, but for now, that's a valid takeaway. So if there's uniformity from the Bible scholars, I'll go along with them. If there's not uniformity, then I'm going to listen to a lot of different voices. And let me just be honest with you again. I am going to side and agree with the people that do the best job of explaining the issues in my mind. I don't know if I need to apologize for that. I'm willing to acknowledge it. And I suspect that all of you would go along if you're honest and say the same thing that you don't typically agree with people that see the world completely different from how you do. So if I find people that um, say you have to believe that uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is a simple historical narrative, there's nothing figurative, there's nothing metaphorical, nothing poetic anywhere in those 11 chapters, I acknowledge that that exists. That just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't help me understand scripture in a way that's coherent. So while I acknowledge that that perspective is out there, I might side with people that see it differently because I think that they address the issues and concerns and maybe conflicts that exist in my mind when I approach those sections of scripture. So today we are going to talk about a few key sections of scripture And I think there are at least three passages that are of interest, and we could go way beyond this, but this will probably already stretch our limits of time. I want to talk a little bit about Genesis 1, a little bit about Genesis 2 and 3, maybe a little bit about Genesis 6 and 8 and the depiction of the flood, and then a few select New Testament sections that are all relevant to this idea of how should we approach Scripture when it comes to the question of, is the earth billions of years old? And could it have been that God created via an evolutionary mechanism? Now, all of these texts have deep and complex theological implications. No one denies that. But the question is, can they be read as a simple historical narrative just by providing a blow-by-blow account of events? Or, and are they also providing a mechanistic account of how those events occurred? Right? Is that the best reading that is just, we're just reading a history, including how things happened? Or are they different from that? Are they more poetic or are they more allegorical or are they more uh, nuanced? Right? And so those are kind of the, maybe the two different perspectives, simple historical narrative versus like a theological history or an allegorical history of creation and humanity. This probably won't come as a surprise to you that have been listening to me for the past weeks, but after years of trying to read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as a simple historical narrative, I no longer see it that way. There were too many issues that were not making sense to me, Uh, too many aspects that caused more confusion than clarity. And in my approach that I now uh, read those passages with as something different, more of a theological history or an allegorical history, it puts the pieces together. Not just 
in compatibility with science, but actually in theological application as well. Right? So there, there are some sort of confusing points. Clearly, we have two creation accounts. We have one in Genesis 1 that ends at the beginning of Genesis 2 with God resting uh, those seven days. And then we have another creation account in Genesis 2. And what's fascinating is that the timing and, and processes described in those two accounts are different. And I think that the differences in those two accounts on the first two pages of the Bible are a, a big sign that says uh, one of these cannot be a simple historical narrative, and possibly both of them are not simple historical narratives, right? So um, some of the discrepancies in the timing, what came first between water and humans and plants, and how long was the duration of creating humans and then animals and then uh, or sorry, the, the, the male human and then the animal and the female human, and how long of a period was that taking place? And were there other humans around? And did God rest and cease creation and then create more things after that? These are all questions that we could discuss for an hour each. And I want this to be more of an overview. So I'm not going to break into all of them, but I think many of you are probably aware that there are some areas where if you read it as a simple historical narrative, which causes some comfort in some areas, like I can just take this plain reading of scripture and anybody can read it and understand it simply, creates problems in other ways. Um, creates confusion by saying, well, how, how could there be light without a sun? And if you say that, well, God is light, then, well, then how could there have been darkness when, when there was night on days one and days two and days three before the depiction of the creation of the sun. Does that mean God turned his light off? But again, we could just go into this and spend hours on it. So if I no longer approach these passages of scripture as simple historical narratives, how should we approach them? Well, John Walton, who is a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College, has provided great clarity to me through uh, a number of books that he has written. Uh, he has kind of this Lost World series that started with the Lost World of Genesis 1 and the Lost World of Adam and Eve and the Lost World of the Flood, which I haven't read yet, but is on my to-read list for the near future. And his approach to this makes so much sense to me. And not only does it make sense to me, but it has been embraced by many, many other people in biblical scholarship. And so this is not just uh, his little secret that I agree with. This is an approach that many people have seen wisdom in and have come to accept. And I am in agreement with that. So his perspective is that Genesis 1 is not a depiction of the material origins of the universe, the Genesis 1 is about the inauguration of the earth as a temple of God. A temple is a place where you go to worship God. And the earth is the place where we live and we worship God. And he was the first, I think the first, to draw really clear distinctions between the language that's used to describe the literal temple and tabernacle that was created later and depicted in, in Leviticus and 
Exodus, I think. Uh, could be wrong on those, on those books. And the language that's used in Genesis 1. So he says Genesis 1 is about the inauguration of the earth as a temple and the assigning of functions to what God created. Right? So there's language within Genesis 1 that talks that gives assigns jobs to the sun and the moon and assigns jobs to the animals to be fruitful and multiply and assigns jobs to humans to be fruitful and multiply and to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and the uh, fish and the animals on the ground. Sorry, I got lost there for a moment. So Genesis 1, he proposes is about the inauguration of the earth as a temple of God. And it's therefore silent on the mechanism that God used to create the universe. He's not questioning if God created the material universe. He's just saying, I don't think the Bible tells us how it was done. So Genesis 1, he says, is the inauguration of the earth as a temple of God. And that Genesis 2 and 3 is preventing Adam and Eve as historical figures that were presented as archetypes of humanity. What's an archetype? An archetype is it's kind of a literary device that helps us see that what's true of one thing is true of all. Right? So in the case of using Adam and Eve as archetypes, we say that what's true of Adam and Eve as humans, as bearers of the image of God, is true of all humanity. Now, I think most people, even those with a literal interpretation, would agree that to some degree that's true. Right? Everybody sees Adam and Eve as archetypes of humanity. But Walton argues that that's the emphasis of Genesis, not just the historical blow-by-blow of how humans came to be and that we have to uh, draw the archetypal nature of their existence out with interpretation. But he says that that is the primary message, is the story of humanity. It's basically the formation of our worldview, right? Our, Our worldview asks questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Why is life like it is for us? And where are we going? What's our ultimate purpose? And in Genesis 1 through 3, all of those questions are answered. Humans are bearers of the image of God. We are here to commune with God and experience his love and grace. Life is hard and a struggle because of sin and because our rejection of the truth uh, of uh, you know the system of morality that God set in place and our decision as humans represented in the decision of Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to define right and wrong for ourselves, right? So in the first three pages of the Bible, our entire worldview is laid before us. And so Walton's perspective is that These verses have almost nothing to say about science. In fact, I think he says they have nothing to say about science. They're not trying to give a depiction of mechanisms at any point. That they are all about teaching us theology, that the earth is a temple where we worship God, and establishing our worldview and who we are as humans and why our lives are as they are, which is hard and full of turmoil, and that's because of sin. So I call that a theological history. Right? It's a history, but it's a history that's, that's shared with us and written to us in a way that the theological takeaways 
are primary and the historicity, as we like to say, the historical accuracy is, is, is not the purpose of, of those writings. It's not to tell us exactly what happened. It's to give us the meaning. And the same thing goes for the flood. Walton and others see the flood as a historical event, that there was a flood, but that it was regional. It covered everything that they knew of and that the, the takeaways are more theological than historical that it wasn't global in nature, but it was this depiction of how God was so saddened by the way humanity had turned out so evil and so so separate from his understanding of what it means to bear God's image and so full of hate and strife that God considered scrapping his whole experiment of creating humans to bear his image but that God decided to perpetuate that experiment, this kingdom experiment, but to wipe out some of the evil and give us kind of a fresh start. And his commitment to never, ever reject humanity again and describe to scrap his kingdom experiment, but that he was committed to humans. And so the theological takeaways are primary and the historicity is not the motivation for writing those texts. So we could go on for hours and hours about how he and I have come to peace with that idea, but I am now very much at peace, even though I haven't always been after the first couple decades of my life trying to fit perfect science and history into that scripture, I now am very comfortable with the idea of accommodation, that God accommodates our understanding of the world to tell his story, and that we shouldn't try and read our modern understandings into this ancient document. And when we do so, it causes conflict, it causes misunderstanding, and that God accommodates our understandings of his chosen people to tell his story. And this idea is affirmed by scholars and preachers like John Walton and N.T. Wright, who says, I think Walton's got the right idea. And the late John Stott, who I think was so wise and insightful and agreed that evolutionary creationism is not incompatible with scripture. And Billy Graham, who in 1997 said the following, and I quote, I don't think there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times and we've tried to make the scriptures say things they weren't meant to say. I think we've made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption. And of course I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created man and whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point, he took this person or a being and made him a living soul or not does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship to God. Right? So he is saying theological takeaways are more important and are the emphasis of the story more so than the historicity and the scientific interpretations that some people have tried to pull out of those passages. So I've made peace with Genesis as an account of the inauguration of the earth as a temple and the story of humanity and their assigned vocation as bearers of the image of God 
and our understanding of why the world is not the way it ought to be. It's because of sin, which is a story that tells us it needs redemption. And it's leading to the story of Jesus. So what about the New Testament? There are a few verses that are often referenced as pointing to a historical account of Genesis. And those are in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And so these are both written by Paul. We'll start with Romans 5, 12 through 21. I'm just going to read these really quickly so that we're all on the same page. Uh, Romans 5, uh, starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespasses of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provisions of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Almost done. Consequently, just as one trespass results in condemnation for all people, so all so one righteousness act, so one righteous act results in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespasses might increase, but where sin increases, grace increase all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, simple. Okay, maybe not so simple. But we can approach this asking, what's more necessary, right? The historical account of Adam and Eve or the archetypal account of Adam and Eve? Now, N.T. Wright, who is a New Testament scholar, right? So these are New Testament verses. So we're going to switch from the views of Walton to N.T. Wright, who is someone who I respect just tremendously and I think has got a really good grasp on what Scripture is trying to tell. He argues that Paul is referencing Psalm 8 in this verse, and so he's kind of an intertextual interpretation, and that Romans 1 through 8 entirely is not simply saying we're sinful and we need saving, but it's the story of how God's whole kingdom project is off the rails and it needs to get back on track. And that Romans 8 uh, is explicit about that, talking about how the, the creation and the kingdom is eagerly awaiting the return of humans to their nature as the son of man. So Wright argues that Paul's Adam theology is also his kingdom theology. And this is, again, where it makes a lot of sense to me. God isn't just saying this is how to be saved for individuals. It's a story of how Jesus is bringing God's kingdom here on earth 
as it is in heaven. It's the story of how uh, Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom of heaven. It's the story of what we talk about as the 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 now and not yet, right? That through Jesus, the kingdom project is started and that we can anticipate a furthering of that when Jesus returns. So th- those, those verses that I read in Romans 5 are talking about God setting people right in order that through them, he will set the world right, right? Now that's dependent on the theology of how Adam sinned and brought death into the world, not literal physical death, but separation from God and separation from our existence as image bearers of God and that through Jesus, we are put back on the right track and that we can then bear God's image fully as we were originally intended to do. So N.T. Wright says this is about kingdom theology, not just about why we, we die. It's compatible with a historical Adam and Eve, but it's not dependent on a historical Adam and Eve, even though both Walton and Wright say, I'm fine with there being a historical Adam and Eve. They think that there is a historical Adam and Eve. They just don't think that's the thrust of those verses to tell us the history of the first humans. They think the thrust is to tell us why humanity is experiencing strife because of sin. Now let's transition to a different verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. This is a little bit shorter, so I'm just going to read it again, starting with verse 45. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was the dust was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. This references to the heavenly man or the second man is talking, of course, about Jesus. So Wright argues that this is Paul's now and not yet theology, which is so pervasive throughout the New Testament, not just in Paul, right? That even Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven is here, the kingdom of heaven is now, and uh, that when Christ returns in the future, that the kingdom of heaven will be fully inaugurated, right? So it's, it's now and it's not yet. So Wright emphasizes that this is about getting the kingdom back on track not about getting individuals in heaven. This is about the story of all humanity, not just about the story of Adam. And so Christ is at last where Adam should have been, right? Christ is the new human that God had hoped Adam would have been. So God put its world into human hands and they totally botched it. Everything's messed up. It's all a disaster. And so then God puts it into the human hands of Jesus, the Messiah, and now we're getting this kingdom project back on track again. So the image of God for humanity is a vocation, and it's talking about our role as bearing God's image to reflect God into the world and to reflect praise back to God. So we're not talking about the story of a single human, Adam. We're talking about the story of all humanity. And so just as God chose Israel to be the conduit for his story, he chose what Wright says are two early hominids for a special 
strange, demanding vocation to represent him as his image bearers and work on his behalf as the forebearers of all humanity and Abraham and eventually Jesus. And so seeing Adam and Eve as archetypes rather than prototypes retains the same theological conclusions. It doesn't change anything. And I think it works with the language of the New Testament as well. It's saying that when Paul keeps referring back to Adam, he's referring to him in the context of how this kingdom project got messed up because of Adam and the kingdom project is getting back on track because of Jesus. And so Wright and many other New Testament scholars say that is fully compatible with these writings in 1 Corinthians and Romans and other section. Okay, So I just want to wrap this up and let me make clear that at no point am I or anybody else saying that the scripture is teaching us evolutionary creationism. I've never heard anybody argue for that, at least not anybody who is a respected uh, Bible scholar or a respected scientist. What we are arguing is that this ancient text contains ancient scientific understandings and, and that by imposing our modern questions onto this ancient text, we are clouding our ability to fully understand the text. So Walton argues that there's no modern scientific conclusions that can be drawn from this ancient text. So he says that there's nothing we can read from Scripture that is a hint of future scientific understandings that many people try and do. And Oh, is this little section over here a forebearer, uh, sort of an inspired uh, revelation of this modern scientific understanding? He thinks there's none of that. I sort of wrestled with that for a while, but I think I may be on board with that. Now, with possibly one exception, the idea that the universe had a beginning, the idea that God created the universe. That, to me, is perhaps the only thing in the scripture where, where it foretold, it predicted a future scientific discovery because there was a belief for a long time in the secular world that the universe was just steady state and always existed. And they were very resistant to the idea that the universe had a beginning in part because of the theological implications and the support that it gives for the Bible. Okay, so the Bible is not trying to teach us science. It doesn't speak to science. It speaks to theology, and it speaks to meaning and interpretation. Science pulls things apart and helps us understand how they work. Theology puts them back together and, and gives them meaning and understanding. Now, as we prepare to wrap up this week's episode, I just want to um, give you some insights into what's happening at Disciple Science. We're so encouraged by the donations that we've received of late, and we're excited about the uh, to get started with production on these next videos, but we are really um, continue to be dependent on your support. We also have some changes coming to the podcast. It's clear from my interpretation of the ratings that you like it when I talk to other people and that when I interview other people. And just like a classroom, you don't really just want to hear a monologue from me. And I don't really want to give a monologue. It's so much more interesting for me to talk to other people. 
So I think we're going to start tweaking the, the format for the podcast. I'm going to try and bring in more guests and have more interviews and fewer and fewer um, single-person monologues from me. And I'm excited about that future direction because there's so much wisdom and so many people that can speak into all these topics. I want to give you an opportunity to hear from them. So thanks for listening this week to the Disciple Science Podcast. Disciple Science is helping people see how science can inspire a deepened Christian faith. We're a nonprofit. We're fully crowdfunded, so everything we do is dependent on your generous support. We're hard at work on a few more videos, but we need your help to make those productions happen. All of your donations go towards supporting the artists that are applying their skill and their craft at bringing uh, those scripts to life. You can help by visiting our website and donating through the Secure Support Portal, which is now on the front page of the website or on the, uh, on the support page that you can click on in the upper right-hand corner. While you're there, we encourage you to explore the rest of our resources, sign up for our newsletter, and send us feedback about what you want to hear more about in the future. We'd also appreciate your willingness to rate and share and like our videos and podcasts. We've also discovered that YouTube really cares a lot about comments and that what they call engagement. If people are engaging with a video, that tells them that people are interested. So if you have something to say about those videos, please share it because that helps people find our videos and we'll tell YouTube to recommend it to others. I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and the amazing work he's put into composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.